All right. Well, obviously we're continuing on in our study of Genesis, chapters 1 through 11, in particular, wrapping up the last few verses of Genesis chapter 4. Uh, we've spent quite a bit of time, obviously, looking at this big contrast that's really unfolded before us in Genesis chapter 4. And of course, the contrast is between two societies, and really the beginning of chapter 4 centers that contrast on two individuals, Cain and Abel, and the societies that they represent, uh, the kinds of people on the planet that they represent, uh, one society being that of the redeemed or the righteous, the society of, of Abel, and the other being the society of Cain, the unredeemed or the unrighteous, or the God-haters, or the society of Satan, if you want to get really biblical, and yet somewhat provocative in, in, the, in the modern uh, secular mind. Think about that for just a moment. Um, this, is a, this, is, this is free. This is not part of the study, so I'm just, this is free of charge. No charge for this part. <clears throat> but, you know, when you really look at Scripture and how it, how it defines um, those who are not a part of the family of God, it's, it's extreme language that's used. And it really, it really strikes against our modern sensibilities. Um, we would not want to refer to people who are un, unsaved as children of Satan. That's something that you would see in a movie title, but you wouldn't really call someone that, and yet that's what Scripture uses, the term that they use. And of course, there are obviously in our ministry amongst uh, the, the lost, we have a ministry of reconciliation, and we're calling them to faithfulness. And of course, apart from the grace of God working in our lives, we are all sons and daughters of Satan as well. But it's just interesting to think about how strong the language is of Scripture and it's important for us to remember that there's no, again, that main point that we made, there's no sort of in-between ground here. The scripture does not provide this neutral ground, and even in the language that it uses to describe these two societies, it's stark, stark, stark language. So you have these two societies, and of course, as I said, the first part of chapter 4 represents them in two individuals, and then as you move into the second half, as we've been talking about, it broadens that view into a broader view of culture and developing society uh, as, it, as we look at the progeny of Cain, for example, and then ultimately uh, the birth and then the unfolding uh, line of Seth as you get to the end of chapter 4, as we'll talk about today. And then, of course, when you turn the corner into chapter 5, you see the full genealogy of Seth being laid out there from, from Seth down to Noah. But you have these two societies, and one we would consider, uh, we, we've called secular society as, as the broad view of this. And the other we would call sacred society. Uh, again, looking at the broad terms that, that unfold here in the second half of Genesis chapter 4. And we started talking last time about some characteristics of secular society. Um, and the first one we looked at was that uh, we, we noted that the development of secular society at the dawn of man's emergence on the planet, his creation, as man progressed rapidly, and he progressed rapidly into a very sophisticated society, an advanced society. And, and really, when you look at that, that time span, it's about 1,600 years from, from Adam to the flood, and you had them occupying this antediluvian environment, this pre-flood environment, so the elements of nature were not as, as adversarial, even though it was a, a world under the curse, um, it just wasn't as adversarial as it was after the flood. And you had these highly intelligent men, these offspring of Cain, men and women, very intelligent, long lives, lots of time to perfect a lot of things. 
And that first half of Genesis chapter 4 speaks to us of all the cultural developments and the technological developments. And so there was, there was developments in, in uh, agriculture and animal husbandry and metallurgy and the use of, of iron, forging of iron and metal into instruments that could be used, tools and weapons and that kind of thing. Uh, there was the development of music, so the arts come onto the scene and, and, uh, and musical instruments and the playing of those instruments. So you had, you, had, you had the building of cities at the very beginning of this section. So you have this society that is developed, and it develops rapidly, and it develops really in, in, under the context of really one family. I mean, it's the, it's the generations of Adam. It's, it's Adam's offspring. And Adam lives, you know, 900 and some odd years, 930 years. So he sees all of this, or much of this, develop in his lifetime. It's quite a startling recognition to think about, um, about what he saw and experienced as, as the father of the living. But you have this society, and it's, it's advanced, and it progresses rapidly. And, of course, this is in stark contrast to the modern, dominant, secular evolutionary model of man's development. And we talked about some of those contrasts. Of course, I'm not going to go into those in, in any detail. But, of course, the model is one of uh, excruciatingly slow progress over millions and millions of years. So the biblical record is not just different than the modern secular scientific model. It's, it's just a complete contrast, really no comparison at all. And, again, you go back to this idea of no middle ground, and oftentimes what happens in even in Christian, Christian circles is this effort to try and merge what is scientific discovery, if you will, or scientific theory with the biblical text, and what you get is this, really this uh, amalgamation of untruth that, that emerges from that type of effort, really does not produce anything of good fruit when you do that. So even in the context of studying man and man's development, and you, you try to find some middle ground between a secular vision of that and the scriptural vision of that, it does not, it does not jive. It does not come together in any clean or helpful way at all. We also talked about how um, that secular society uh, is a massive beneficiary of God's common grace. Uh, that grace of God that is common to all humankind, distinguished from special grace, which is, is what results in our salvation and our sanctification and sustaining us and preserving us and making us holy and then glorifying us um, as God's special children, his elect children. You have God's common grace, which is his manifest grace common to all, giving, to all, thing, giving all things richly to enjoy, the, the, the wonder of the earth and what it's able to produce and yield up uh, in the areas of food and music and and scenery, and beauty, and, and the enjoyment of family, and the enjoyment of having children, and offspring, and all the things that go along with living life uh, as God's special creation, all of us being created in the image of God, that even secular society, even the society of Cain, even those that would reject God's goodness, and reject God's favor, and God's kindness, and not give glory and homage to God for His blessings, still benefit from God's common grace. Uh, in, in amazing and significant ways. We talked a little bit about why um, God would manifest this kind of grace, and of course came up with a few, um, a few reasons, which this is certainly not an exhaustive list, but we talked about how common grace affirms that grace is the uh, essence of God's very nature. 
So God is, God is gracious. So for him to manifest his grace in magnanimous ways is just him manifesting who he is. He is a God of all grace, as Scripture calls him. Uh, common grace seals man's culpability or responsibility for sin. We see that in Romans, how uh, what could be known about God was plain to them by, by, by what they could see in creation, by what they could understand from God's common grace, his manifestation of his grace in creation. And, and they rejected him, and so they were without excuse. So it makes man culpable for sin. Common grace also amplifies the image of God in man. It's very important that we often remind ourselves that all men are created in the image of God. And when you see how God uses people to magnify his creative genius, even though they don't honor God for that, even though they take credit for that, even though they hold themselves up as, as monuments of achievement, it's still, regardless, the reality is, is it puts God's... Uh, it puts, the, it puts the image of God in man on full display. Common grace also motivates believers to love their neighbors and their enemies. That was from Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 5 about loving your enemy and, and recognizing that in that context, he says, God makes the rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. I mean, that's, you're, you're to love everyone as God's people, um, and there's a motivation there to recognize that, that there, there's a sense in which God's common grace has been manifest to all, and, God, and all are created in His image. And there should be a motivation there in recognizing that that would compel us to rightly and appropriately love our neighbor and even love our enemies. Common grace also magnifies the blessing of saving grace. I mean, when you think about common grace, and then you take that a step further and think about God's special grace, and bringing us to salvation in that the grace that we experience that is common to all, namely air conditioning and, you know, the combustible engine that gets us to and fro and all these things that we enjoy, the technology that has created such convenience and such comfort for us and all the variety of foods that we have at our disposal and all the things that you could point to. And then you realize that that is all temporal. It, It all goes away. And even our appetite to be able to enjoy those things is diminishing over time, right? I mean, if I, if I were to think back when I was younger, the idea of going to the mountains and hiking up to the top of Mount Elbert, for example, in Colorado, the highest peak in Colorado, was like awesome. But right now, I would be like, dude, I could, there's no way I could do that. I would die trying to do that. Because my ability to, my capacity to physically enjoy that is diminishing, right? So we see that, and we see how even our our ability to take in and enjoy what is the common grace of God, we recognize it's it's temporal, it's fading. And then we recognize that God's special grace, His eternal salvation that He purchased through Christ, that was purchased for us through Christ, that we have in Christ, that is eternal. It never fades. It's eternal. So it just magnifies the uniqueness and specialness of God's special grace just by recognizing common grace and how it's, it's immense, but it's also temporal. So, again, we notice that, that uh, in secular society, they're, they're, they progressed rapidly into a sophisticated culture. They're beneficiaries of God's amazing common grace. Secular society uh, is also, we talked about last week, how it's inhabited by 
what, what I called settled wanderers. And, you know, we talked about this, this uh, statement in Genesis chapter 4, verse 16, where Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and he settled in the land of Nod. Nod is a term that means wandering. So he settled down in a land of wandering. He was a settled wanderer. And, and you know, some commentators might, would, would argue that that was an act of defiance against God saying you will wander and you will be a, like a nomad uh, without a home. But nevertheless, it really points to or it kind of gives us this image of what, what uh, the, the, those that inhabit secular society are, are really truly like. Um, what's really going on with them. We talked about how you know, they're referred as the lost, right? We call them the lost in our vernacular. They're referred to as lost in Scripture. Um, but they don't, they don't put on the accoutrements of being lost, right? They don't walk around in a daze like, where am I? How do I get to where I'm going? No, there's a real settledness in this place and in this time and in this world that is not only on display, but it's being pursued. That is the end game in secular society, is to be settled in this life, right? To have a, to, to settle your future, to build up a good retirement so that you can live on easy street in your later years. I mean, it's just, it's all about being settled and secure in this world and in this life. And yet, in reality, they're lost and they're wandering, just like, just like Cain in the, in the secular society. We also talked about how um, the monuments of secular society are monuments to secular society. And I just use this, this, this statement about building cities and naming it after his son Enoch. Um, that's, that's typical of secular society is that they build things and they produce things. And those things are intended to bring honor and glory to the society itself or to those who build it. They're not, they're not, they're not given in in a, a, a recognition of God's good gifts. They're not built up to say, look at God's creative genius that's, being on, that's been put on display through the architecture of this phenomenal building or anything like that. It's all monuments to the culture. It's monuments to the culture makers. And that's the nature of secular society. And then the, the last point we talked about last week was that secular society pursues ways to normalize and even boast in wickedness. And of course, we live in that world uh, big time now where uh, things that are clearly um, wicked and um, acts of sin and, and uh, just against God's will, they're not, they're not only normalized, but they're also held up as noble and honorable. And so what's up is down and what's down is up, basically, philosophically, as it relates to um, these vast areas of wickedness that are normalized. And, of course, the example of that in our text is Lamech. Lamech starts off, we, we meet Lamech, and he, he demonstrates to us the corruption of marriage and the covenant of marriage. He's, he has two wives, and so we have polygamy introduced and goes right against the, the statement in Genesis chapter 2, 24, that a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh, not one times several flesh, not, not multiple flesh, it's just one flesh. So there's a corruption of this sacred covenant of marriage. Um, and there's a, there's a boastfulness even in that because the poem of Lamech starts with him addressing his two wives in a very boastful way, kind of bragging to them. Um, so there's just a, a real corruption that's introduced there. 
Uh, we see in Lamech this justification of excessive vengeance. If there is such a thing as excessive vengeance, I'm not sure if that's a real thing or not. But in, in this case, it's not just vengeance, but it's excessive vengeance. Because the passage says, I've killed a man for wounding me and a young man for striking me. So his response to what the, what the text actually is describing is a very light infraction. It's not, it's not a full-on assault. It's not a, a, a strike uh, with deadly force or that would cause, you know, it's not a mortal wound. It's not the nature of the language here. But his response is, is murder. And his justification for that is on full display. He's bragging in that. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. So he's justifying excessive vengeance. And if you think about secular society, I mean, that's just common. If someone does something to you, you have every right to get back at them. Every right. And in in fact, if you don't, then you're weak. There's something wrong with you. What is wrong with you? You're not going to be a doormat, are you? You don't let people walk all over you. Don't ever do that. Right? That's, That's the message. That's the mantra. That's the ideology. That's the philosophy of secular society. And yet we have, all throughout Scripture, and in the New Testament, and the very life of Christ, this totally different perspective of the life of the believer. It's not one of justifying vengeance. In fact, it's not repaying evil for evil. It's being willing to live in a fallen world and even receive treatment by those in authority over us, as Peter talks about, who are crooked and unjust, and to not, not, not lash back. And the example that's given in First Peter is the example of Christ himself. He did not do that, so we don't either. So you have this total justification of excessive vengeance, and then you have this arrogant glorification of wickedness. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. I mean, there's this arrogance there that, that I, if Cain was entitled to this kind of, of retribution from God, then certainly I'm entitled to it. 77 times that, if you will. So he's claiming this right. So he's, he's really adulterating the word of God, in essence. And he's claiming this right, this arrogant glorification of his wickedness, that, that this, is, this, is, this is validated by the very word of God, in essence, um, is what's happening here, what he's saying here. And the interesting thing about this, and I, I, I read this uh, this week, didn't, didn't even think about this, but um, the interesting and fascinating thing about this is that all of this information that Lamech, we find about Lamech that, that really points to secular society of being a society of those who pursue normalization and even glorification of wickedness, all of this is conveyed in the form of poetry. It's a poem. Poetry, which is the most refined form of language, and, and yet it's being used to convey in this utter wicked, arrogant boasting uh, of Lamech. John MacArthur um, pointed this out in his sermon on this, on this text, and he, called, he calls those in secular society cultured savages. It's a great term, cultured savages. Now, I thought about that. And what came to mind as I thought about secular society and the, the sophisticated 
learned, erudite ways that secular society and, and the purveyors of secular society tend to try to normalize and even glorify abominable things. I thought about the abortion issue. And I, I found this article. I found it really a very brief um, illustration of this. But the, the title of the article is The Real Reason You Should Support Abortion. And it takes it from the perspective of a legal argument. So this professor, Andrew Koppelman, a professor at Northwestern uh, Law School, he was asked to deliver a talk. Um, and really what he was asked to do was to re-argue the Roe versus Wade Supreme Court decision, the 1973 decision that made abortion a right and, and made it a protected right by the Constitution. He was asked to re-argue that from a legal, legal perspective. And the original case of Roe v. Wade relied on a tenuous finding of a woman's right to privacy. Unfortunately, notwithstanding all their other wisdom, the inconsiderate founding fathers forgot to include a right to privacy in the Constitution. In other words, there is no right to privacy in the Constitution, even though the, the foundation of the argument in Roe v. Wade kind of centered on that, that elusive concept. So this article says this this point has left pro-choice advocates scrambling for a more concrete way to connect abortion to a constitutional right. So in comes Andrew Koppelman, professor of law at Northwestern. He suggests that the case could be more persuasively be argued under the 13th Amendment, which protects citizens from forced labor. Now stay tuned. You will be amazed. So basically what he's saying is, listen, there is no right to privacy in the Constitution. You can't connect an argument justifying legalized abortion to a constitutional right to privacy because it's not there. However, the 13th Amendment, which deals with a prohibition against forced labor, is a valid legal argument for abortion. It's a fundamental right not to be coerced into service. That's the gist of the 13th Amendment. Here's the argument. Requiring, requiring a woman to carry a baby is, quote, different in degree, but is the same injury as in slavery, Koppelman says. Koppelman's conclusion is that, quote, the natural operation of a statute prohibiting abortion is to make it a crime for a woman to refuse to render service to a fetus. So here's what he's saying. He's saying, forcing a woman to carry a baby to term rather than giving a woman a legal right to abort that baby is forcing a woman into serving a fetus. Okay, that's the legal argument. He says this. He says it's crazy, and a lot of people react with horror at first. But after some reflection... In a choice quote from his paper, the 13th Amendment, quote, draws no distinction between the power of a man's back and arms and those of a woman's fetus. He goes on, a fetus uses someone else's body, forces labor on it, and the burden is on the state to show that it can infringe on a fundamental right. Now, you want to talk about using learned legal education, 
and sophisticated legal semantics to normalize or justify or rationalize the abominable act of murdering an unborn baby. There's, there's one example. And of course, there's many others we could turn to in our culture. But it just points out the fact that that is the society that we live in. That is secular society. It is not a society that is just characterized by badness, by moral badness. It's all, it's all about the philosophical underpinnings of it, where there's this rationalization. There are sophisticated arguments that are formulated. There are learned arguments that are formulated to justify, normalize, and even put on display as noble and right and righteous what is, according to the Word of God, abominable and wicked. That's the nature of secular society. And of course, we read the passage from Romans that gives us, in Romans 1, that gives us this litany of characteristics of secular society. And then at the very end of Romans chapter 1 and verse 32, it says, Though they knew God's righteous decrees that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. The full endorsement. Well, fortunately, there is also sacred society. And that leads us to the last few verses of Genesis chapter 4. And really, this gets us into kind of the third part of our big outline on this profile of life in a fallen world, which really focuses in on the preservation and hope of the righteous. So the, 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 the narrative turns positive for us here at the end. It's similar to the first part, where you have a lot of content dealing with Cain and Cain's uh, malicious and treacherous act of murder against Abel and then his complete refusal to acknowledge that sin before God and to, he first of all does not listen to God's warnings about sin crouching at the door and its desire being for you and he pursues this treacherous, treacherous path of murdering his brother he acts like he doesn't know where his brother is when he's confronted he kind of responds in a mocking way just on and on it goes you see this whole litany of of Cain revealing his true nature and his true heart, whereas Abel in that first section shows up on the scene, his occupation is, is articulated, his offering is deemed acceptable as is he's deemed acceptable, and then he's snuffed out, and that's the end of his story. Similar to that is, is Seth in this particular chapter, because you have all this information about secular society, the offspring, the progeny of Cain, and then these last two verses here with this hope. And if you think about the, the nature of God's redemptive plan throughout redemptive history, we're even talking about it on Sunday mornings in our study of Romans, this whole concept of a remnant. That in the face of the vastness of, of suffering and trial and what, it's, what seems like the, the potential snuffing out of anything redemptive in God's timeline or God's economy, there is always, always, always a remnant of God's people that is preserved and protected through it all. And this is, this is another indication of that. In fact, it's one of the earliest initial indications of that, uh, evidences of that. So let's read these last two verses in Genesis chapter 4, verses 25 to 26. You turn the corner from Lamech and his wonderful poetry about polygamy and, <laughs> and vengeance, this beautiful poem, right? Then we get to verse 25. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. 
To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So the chapter closes with this hope, this hope of of the promise. So the first characteristic we see here of sacred society, I only have two uh, from this particular two verses. Sacred society is rooted in the promises of God. Sacred society is always, always, always rooted in the promises of God. In this verse, in these verses, you see Seth as a true son of promise. Think about the contrast between Eve's statement here and her statement at the birth of Cain. In chapter 4, verse 1, when Cain is born, she says, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. But here, in verse 25, she says, God has appointed for me another offspring. Instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. And you have the same word being used, offspring, that was used in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, when the curse is being leveled out, where God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So we have, in the text, we have this identification that Seth really is in the line of promise. This is the true promise that God's word has not failed, that God's promise is going to come to pass. Seth is a child of promise. Sacred society is rooted in the promises, in confidence and trust, in the solid, eternal promises of God. And Seth is our reference point for that. You see in Luke chapter 3, verses 23 to 38, the genealogy of Christ. And there at the end, in verse 38, you have Seth to Adam. It goes in reverse. It's kind of a reverse genealogy. It starts with Jesus, and it works, works its way back in time. And it takes you all the way back to Seth in verse 38. Seth being in the line of Christ. That is the offspring of promise. The second characteristic is this, that sacred society is known for its worship and its teaching. Sacred society is known for its worship and its teaching. Verse 26 says this, To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. And this statement, call upon, is really, it really could be termed to proclaim. It's really a statement of proclamation, proclaiming the name of the Lord. It carries this idea of worship and the proclamation of truth. The proclamation of the name of the true and living God who is creator of all things, Yahweh. It's a a worshipful uh, idea and it's a proclamation idea combined. And that's what sacred society is known for. Sacred society may build buildings, People in sacred society are architects. People in the redeemed family are artisans and craftsmen and exceptional artists and have all the gifts and all the natural abilities that are a part of common grace that that secular society has. But that's not what sacred society is known for. That's not what the people of God seek to be known for. That's not their legacy. Their legacy is a legacy of faithfulness in worship and in proclamation of the truth of God's word. 
That's the legacy of sacred society. That's the legacy of the people of God. And we've talked about this before, made this point, but this particular passage really puts the question in front of us very clearly. What is our legacy? What will be our legacy individually, in our families, as a church, collectively? What is our legacy? And if our legacy is something other than worship and proclamation of the true and living God, then it's not a legacy of true sacred society. And if you think about what often happens under the guise of sacred society, what you see is the building of edifices, the building of legacies that are more secular than they are sacred. And if you think about your own life, and I think about my own life, and the often tendencies that I have toward trying to build something that is temporal, pursuing something that is temporal, for its own sake. Now, I'm not talking about not working hard and making a living and enjoying what God has provided. I'm not, I'm not talking about a, a life of poverty and you know, a monastic lifestyle out in the wilderness somewhere. I'm talking about our, the motives and intentions of our hearts and what legacy we're actually building. And if we're building a legacy on something other than true worship and true proclamation of God's word, it's not a legacy of sacred society. It's not in the line of Seth. It's not a legacy of Seth. Well, we'll turn the corner next week, and we'll focus on chapter 5. I think we'll be able to do all of chapter 5 in one day, because you read chapter 5, and it's like people are born, and they have sons and daughters, and they die, except for a few little spots. There's, like a, there's not a lot to really say about all these different people. Um, in fact, what you find is that when you get to uh, chapter 6 and the opening of the flood narrative, you recognize that it's Noah and his sons and their wives. It's that, that small group of people, those eight people that are left, and everyone else gets obliterated and, and wiped off the face of the earth. So um, there's just not a lot of, not a lot of content, uh, nor is there a lot of life lived, I don't think, um, uh, from, that, from that whole line as, as offspring. It's also important to note that um, even though Seth represented the promise he was a line of promise. He was a true son of promise. That's not to say that all in the line of Seth were of, of the promise. Of course, we know that that's true, right? Not, not, not everybody. It's, in other words, it's not by blood that you are of the promise. And we're talking about this in, in the Roman study. Um, not all Israel are Israel, is, is the way it would say in, in, in Romans. Is that, you know, there's, there is the true elect as part of um, national Israel, if you will. The same is true in the line of Seth. So I don't want to indicate or give any kind of impression that somehow this had to do with Seth and his blood being passed on as some kind of special bloodline. But it is his line that is the line of the promise and leads to um, the line of Christ. But we'll look at that next week and we'll look at um, some of the characteristics of that genealogy. And really it's heading us straight into the, the flood narrative, which is going to be quite fascinating. Any other questions or comments before we close? All right, let's pray.